Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. This week we've been discovering so much about Jesus and the beginning of his ministry in the series, The King Goes Public. Today, Dr. Neufeld unpacks some great lessons from the baptism of Jesus as we explore the humility of the great King. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 with Dr. Neufeld. The story is told of a group of tourists visiting the house of Beethoven. They came to the room that housed the very famous piano on which he had composed. The guide simply said, and here now is the master's piano. There was one woman in the group, and without being asked, she sat down on the bench and played a brief section of one of Beethoven's sonatas. She then said, I suppose a lot of people have enjoyed playing on this piano. And the guide said, well... Ignacy Paderewski, former prime minister of Poland, and in his day, one of the greatest pianists in the world, was asked to play on this very piano. And he said, no, I'm not worthy. See, humility is an interesting thing. It's especially interesting when someone who has little to offer has none of it, and someone who has so much to offer demands it of themselves. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Take the initiative in being humble and be content to let God, in his own time, promote you according to his own good pleasure. Let's go back to the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. John has been announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The great king was about to be revealed, and when the king comes, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Now is the time to get right with God. Repent, and then as a sign of genuine, heartfelt repentance, I will baptize you in the Jordan. Imagine, if you will, the crowd's response. Some are in tears as for the first time they see how abhorrent their behavior is to God. Others are just quiet, contemplating how it has come to this, that they have become enemies of God. Some people have questions. What does this mean we should do? Some who are rich are being instructed to share their wealth with the poor. Tax collectors are told to stop overtaxing the population and extorting their money to line their own pockets. Roman soldiers are also told to be content with their pay and stop threatening the people and taking their money. Prostitutes are leaving their professions. And then the baptismal line forms, and everyone in the line has gotten a specific and individual sense of their own sin. And now try to picture that scene, a long line of sinners lurching forward one step at a time down to the banks of Jordan, waiting for the person in front of them to be baptized, and then the next step forward, and then in the water, and then comes the baptism. And as you look down the line, you notice to your utter amazement, Jesus standing patiently in line just like everyone else. When the line moves up, he moves with it. He's simply waiting his turn, not saying a word, not protesting that he was better and has different reasons than everyone else in the line. Now, he, along with all the others, waits for his turn to be baptized. And if you didn't know better, you'd mistake him for any number of sinners who are lining up. So let's read Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
Matthew tells us that Jesus had come all the way from Galilee to the Jordan. Mark tells us that he was living in Nazareth at the time. We remember that John was baptizing somewhere along the Jordan as it flows southward into Judea and then finally empties into the Dead Sea. There have been a number of traditional sites given for this baptism, but the actual place is not mentioned in the biblical text. So how far did Jesus walk to get there? We can't say exactly with certainty how far he walked, but it's likely that he walked somewhere about 100 kilometers to get there. So assume that Jesus was in excellent physical condition, that that would have been a three-day walk. Of course, he would have spent some time there and then three days to get home, so we assume that he would have been gone for over a week. You must therefore assume that he thought that what he was doing was very important. Because the text seems to indicate that John may not have been expecting Jesus, we then assume that Jesus came unannounced. Because he was not known at the time, his arrival created no stir at all. He was simply among the crowd, hearing John's sermon. Then he simply got into the sinner's line and eventually stood before John, ready to be baptized. Matthew says that John would have prevented Jesus, that is, if he could have. John is protesting. I need to be baptized by you. He clearly believes that Jesus had no need to be baptized like everyone else. That indicates two things. First, that John and Jesus knew each other, but that shouldn't be surprising. We know that Jesus' mother, Mary, and John's mother, Elizabeth, were relatives and that the two women visited each other while they were pregnant. Indeed, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months during that time. Since Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary arrived, it's not impossible that Mary could have assisted in the birth of John. Well, did the boys play together? We're not told. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, and John was raised in the hill country of Judah, so they would have been some distance from each other. I doubt they spent a lot of time together so far away, although they would have known one another. I'm also assuming that Elizabeth told John of his own miraculous birth, but she also would have told him about the greater miracle of the birth of Jesus. So it's not surprising that John recognized Jesus when he stood before him. After all, they were related. Secondly, we assume that John must have been aware of Jesus' righteous character. I'm assuming that he had heard news of the kind of young man he was, about his fervor for Scripture and for righteousness. We don't know if John knew that Jesus was sinless. I suspect he did not. I say that because in the Gospel of John, and that, by the way, is not the Gospel of John the Baptist, but it's the Gospel of John the Apostle. John the Apostle mentioned that it was only after the baptismal experience of Jesus that John the Baptist begins to call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, I assume that John the Baptist knew Jesus as righteous and noble, But he did not know that he was the Messiah with certainty, and he certainly did not know that he was sinless. But he was. Hebrews 4.15 teaches that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, and yet was without sin. I mention this because I'm amazed how often I hear people, even Christian people, say they believe that Jesus sinned on occasion. Please understand that the Bible adamantly denies this. We see that in Hebrews 4.15, but also in Hebrews 7.26. There we're told that Jesus, had he not been sinless, he would not have been our perfect high priest. And then Hebrews 7.26 adds, Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. 
So again, we have to ask the question, if that's the case, what is Jesus doing standing in front of John the Baptist, insisting that John baptize him? And what does this explanation mean when he says it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness? How is it righteous for a sinless man to be baptized with a baptism signifying repentance? I think Jesus was baptized for three reasons. The first is simple. Jesus knows it to be the Father's will that he be baptized. And this will become the theme of his ministry. He will only act according to the Father's will. He will be known as submissive to the Father in everything. The second reason has to do with Christ seeking to identify himself with the people he came to save. Jesus will take upon himself the role of a servant. He will stoop down and wash the feet of the disciples. He will say that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In the end, he will be utterly humiliated as he is slandered, beaten, tortured, and killed. His baptism is but the first symbol of his willingness to take the road of humility. His is a deliberate act of humiliation. I could stop here and ask, who deliberately seeks to be humiliated? No one, but he did. And by the way, from Jesus, we learn the pathway of humility. We learn to wash one another's feet. We learn that from him. But there's a third important lesson and a reason why Jesus was baptized. He does so in anticipation of his work on the cross. In a sense, and this may seem subtle, but in a sense, he is baptized as a representative of the Jewish nation and as a representative of everyone who needs to repent. He stands in line for us. Now, I'm sure that John would not have understood all these reasons. He only knew that in some fashion to baptize Jesus would fulfill the righteous demands of the Father, and so he consents. But to the rest of the people there that day, all of this was lost on them. Here in their eyes was just another sinner in need of repentance and baptism. And when we come back, we're going to see that what Jesus did forms an important lesson on the nature of Christ and of our own need to be like him. We should seek the lowest place. We should think that humility is a welcome place for us to be. I know that we find that difficult, but I'm going to continue to want to press this example of Jesus on us so that we will say to the Father, oh, to be like him. I want to be humble even as my Savior is. In these couple of verses regarding Jesus' own baptism, we learn so much. For instance, the significance of the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. But most importantly, about why this first step of baptism was a critical part of Jesus' faithful obedience to the Father's will from this point forward to the day of his crucifixion. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will return to discuss how Jesus' life exemplified the perfect model of humility that we're called to as Christians to follow. Can I smoke pot? Well, this month on Truth and Life Today, Dr. John Newfeld welcomed Mark Ward to discuss his book, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture. You know, by looking at the biblical teaching on creation, government, medicine, and alcohol, this book sets out to help people make wise and God-honoring decisions about marijuana use. Rather than just providing a list of proof texts, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture looks at what the Bible teaches as a unified whole, from Genesis to Revelation, so we can more confidently answer the question, what does the Bible say? So for the month of April, we want to make this timely book available to our listeners for only $8, and it includes shipping, handling, and taxes. So give us a call today, would you? 
The number is 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and remember to order yours today because quantities are limited. In Philippians 2, Paul the Apostle speaks about the attitude of Jesus. This Jesus, he says, has always existed in the form of God. The Greek word Paul uses is the word morphe, which means that Jesus has the exact nature of God and that he possesses all the characteristics and qualities of God. What Paul does in Philippians 2 is stress that the Father and the Son have been co-equals from all eternity. And then having made that point, Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave. He made himself like one of the sinners in a long line of sinners, even though he knew no sin and has always been in the form of God. But do you remember James 4.10? Humble yourself and the Lord will exalt you. Paul in Philippians 2 says the same thing. Therefore, he says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. Let's get back to the baptism of Jesus. Matthew tells us that as Jesus was being baptized, the heavens were open to him. Now, we're not told if they were open to the others there. Did the crowd also see the heavens opened? Did they hear the voice and see the Holy Spirit? I don't know if we can answer that with certainty, but it does seem from reading the text that this is far more than a private revelation. John the Baptist saw it. He testifies about it in John 1, 32 and 33. So if John and Jesus saw it, I'm assuming that it was heard by everyone else as well. The very point of the experience is to publicly point out who it was that God had chosen to identify him before the people. But what do these events mean? Why did they occur? In order to answer that, let's look at these events as they occur in sequence. First, the descent of the Holy Spirit. Please be aware that the Holy Spirit is a spirit. That means he's not corporal or that he has no body. If you were to ask what the Holy Spirit, or for that matter, what God the Father actually looks like, I'd have to answer, well, there's nothing to see. John 4.24 says that God is spirit. Or listen to Deuteronomy 4.15. In giving instructions against idolatry, Moses says, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure. The point is, there is no form when we speak of God. Not only is it idolatry to make a form, it's equally idolatrous to imagine a form. That's why Psalm 139, 7 and 8 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Because God is spirit, he inhabits all spaces at all times. It's impossible to ever be out of his presence. So what does that mean? It means that God exists as a being that is not made of matter, that his existence is unlike anything else in all creation, and we are unable to perceive him with our bodily senses. But God condescends to speak to us in a way that we can understand. And so on the day of the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit reveals his presence in the form of a gentle dove, and he descends on Jesus. 
Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, John has been speaking of a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and here now is the Holy Spirit showing that he has come to rest on the man whom God has chosen, whom God has approved. And second, coming in the form of gentleness shows us that the ministry of Jesus will be gentle. The Holy Spirit's role will surely be that of power, but it will be a power that brings hope. If you'd been standing in the sinner's line of repentance, you should have taken great hope at that moment. God was going to be gentle with you as the Holy Spirit came. But now the next event occurs. The Father speaks, and his words are, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I place my seal of approval on this one who is my beloved Son. Now, many Bible teachers find this incident the beginnings of a full doctrine of the Trinity, and I think they're right in doing so. Calling Jesus the Son of God is the same as calling him God. Let me explain that. Not long ago, members of a religious group came to my door, and we had a little discussion, and in it I said, the problem I have with what you say is that you deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And they responded, no, we don't, to which I said, yes, you do. And that went on for a while. They were saying, no, we don't. And I was saying, yes, you do, until it came time for us to explain what we meant. I said, there's a great deal of difference between a son and a created being. And then I gave an example. I said, I actually have a son. Now, would you believe me if I told you my son was a giraffe or a bear or an owl? And they said, well, that's silly. And I agreed. When I say I have a son, you assume he's human because I'm human. You assume he's not eternal, that he has a a point of beginning, and that he will have a point of ending, just like his old man. You assume he's one among many humans, a chip off the old block. In fact, when I say I have a son, I'm telling you that my son is my son because he shares in my substance, in my essence. That's what makes him my son. If God has a son, then that son shares in his substance and essence that is the essence of God himself. If God is one, then the son is the one God. If God is eternal, has no beginning and no ending, then the son is eternal as well. Otherwise, he would not share in his essence. If God is omnipresent, omniscient, self-existent, unchangeable, and timeless in his being, then if the Son shares fully in his substance and essence, then the same thing must be said of the Son as well. To call Jesus begotten of the Father is to ascribe to him the attributes of God. Anything less would not be the Son. Now, there's so much more that we can say about the Trinity. We might notice that there are three distinct persons. All are present here at the baptism. We might note that the Bible is quite clear that there are not three gods. There's only one God. We might note that each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is fully God. We might also note that each person in the Trinity plays a distinct role, and that's all true, and all present themselves according to their unique role at this baptism. How so? Well, the Father says of the Son, He is pleasing to me. What He means by that is the Son is doing exactly what I have commanded Him to do. And the Holy Spirit comes to say that He will give the Son the power to perform that which the Father commanded. And that takes us back to the beginning of this message. Remember the story of the tourist sitting down at Beethoven's piano and the Prime Minister of Poland refusing to do the same. Do you remember Paul's words that Jesus refused his advantage as God for his own benefit, but humbled himself? And then Paul adds, have this same attitude in yourself. And here's the lesson we must learn. 
If the Son of God thought he should be baptized by John, should obey the voice of his Father, and humbly wait for the Holy Spirit to empower him, why is this same attitude so difficult for us? Why is the way that Jesus lived his life and the way he rose to prominence so offensive? Why is it so hard to be like Jesus? I'm reminded of how desperately we all crave for recognition. Corrie Ten Boom was a woman who hid Jews from the Nazis in the end of the Second World War and spent time in a concentration camp. After she was liberated, she spent the rest of her life talking about her experiences and how God had been gracious to her. People crowded out stadiums to hear her. She was once asked if it was difficult to remain humble. And here's what she said. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, when everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think for a moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? And then she said, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. That's the attitude we must learn. Let's learn from Jesus. When the great king went public, he did not do it as one who hungered for recognition. He did it as one who submitted to the plan of the Father. Great message, John. And I'm inspired and encouraged, but I gotta ask you, how do we do it? I mean, how do we begin to live like Jesus when it seems everything inside me would work to the contrary? I think that each one of us knows that the more we talk about humility, the less we seem likely to perform it. I think it is true. I think what we need to do is stop thinking about our own humility and start thinking about Christ, being enamored by Him and thinking what a joy and what an honor it is to serve Him and uh, get our eyes focused on God and not ourselves. I think at least is the beginning part. Uh, that's why I, I quoted from uh, that wonderful story about uh, uh, Corey Ten Boom, who has this, this being the donkey on which Jesus rides. May I be that donkey? Uh, I love that. And John, we've spent this week talking about the baptism of Jesus. If you had one thing that sticks in your mind, what is the one thing that you would say, hey, this is what I think about when I think about that moment of time? I know it's a big theological term, but divine condescension. I can't even imagine that the God of all of eternity should condescend to actually be identified with me. What would lead him to do that except divine love and grace? I'm overwhelmed by the baptism of Jesus. I can almost imagine myself saying, I'd never do that. And yet he did. He uh, became obedient even to the point of death. We need to get a picture of that constantly in our eyes. What a great picture and what a great message. Thanks so much for sharing today, John. And we look forward to continuing in the book of Matthew tomorrow here on Back to the Bible Canada. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. 
Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s, and since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.